Uh, what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Shonda Laney? 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 Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and best-selling author of Contagious: Why Things Catch On and Invisible Influence: The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. Dr. Berger has spent over 15 years studying how social influence works and how it drives products and ideas to catch on. He's taught Wharton's top-ranked online course, published dozens of articles in top-tier academic journals, consulted for a variety of Fortune 500 companies, and popular outlets like the New York Times and Harvard Business Review often cover his work. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. Jonah Berger, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing this evening? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, of course. Your work is something I truly admire. I, I love your books. I love your writing. So I cannot wait for the listeners to hear more about you. But I'm always interested in morning routines, success habits, anything like that that you've structured your day around? <laughs> you know, I wish I, I could say I have some magic sauce, but I will mention one thing that I found very valuable. Uh, and that is don't read any email twice. Uh, so many times, you know, we we're so interested in getting the email right away. We read it and then we say, okay, I'll deal with this later. But if you're dealing with it later, it means you're reading it a second, sometimes a third or a fourth time. And so what it means is, Hey, don't start doing your email unless you're ready to take the time to answer it. But when you're ready to take the time to answer it, answer it then, unless it's really, really important. So it doesn't take more time later on. 
that's some of the best advice I ever received. Now that I've done that, I absolutely love that. So great impact there you're already having with the listeners. You're interested in protecting your time. How do you divide your time up throughout the day? It's a hard question. I think it's very easy to let small stuff take over. Um, and it's very easy to feel like we're making progress, even though we're not making progress on the things we care most about. Um, and so I think it's important to be an architect with your time. Step back a little bit and say, hey, not just, well, what's important now, but by the end of the week or the end of the day or the end of the month, what are those big things I want to make sure I get done? Sketching out and spacing out time for those things to make sure you get to them. And then the small stuff will fit in in between. Sketching out the big stuff. We're just into 2019 here. Do you do anything at the outset of a new year? You know, I think the new year can be a great time for, for people to sketch out the future. For me, it's not always the new year's as much as when projects begin and end. So I'm about to turn in a, a big new book that I'm working on, for example. And once that settles down, then I'll, then I'll worry about the next thing. But for the moment, that's kind of getting all my focused attention. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, let's dive into your backstory a bit. You, you seem like you really enjoy solving people problems. Where, where's the interest in your current work? How did you first get started in this field? You know, I've always been curious about human behavior. Um, uh, I'm not necessarily a, a great uh, behavior myself. I don't always do things that were rational or make the most sense. Um, but I'm always interested in understanding, well, why does that happen? Why do I and others do things that don't always make sense? And even when we do make sense, how does that lead certain products, ideas, and behaviors to catch on? Uh, even when I was young, I was always interested in sort of the hard sciences, you know, the, the math and computer science and, um, and those sorts of things. And as I got older, I wondered whether we could apply those same tools of rigorous experimentation and statistics and model and so on to more social questions like why do some things become popular? And so um, I've gotten a nice opportunity to be able to do that in the last few years. Well, I'm glad you took advantage of that opportunity because I first came across you from your book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. I absolutely love it. What truly led to, to you being interested in this topic and then going down the rabbit hole to actually write a book? You know, uh, in, in graduate school, but also in undergrad, I got started working uh, with a professor who was interested in rumors and urban legends, interested in why some rumors, uh, you know, catch on and, and diffuse and why some urban legends become popular. People often think I got interested because I was, you know, uh, on social media ahead of the curve, but it wasn't that at all. It was sort of old, traditional face-to-face -face word of mouth and thinking about, well, what about those things made them more likely to be shared? Um, one of my first big projects in the space was looking at actually the New York Times most emailed list. So, you know, looking at the newspaper and saying, God, some articles are more emailed than others. What about them makes them more likely to be shared? But as these projects sort of built on one another, we began to get a, a learning of what drives sharing in the first place. I think when we look online in particular, we look at the grocery store, we look at whether it's a product or service, we often think it's luck or random why some things catch on. You know, they, they got really lucky or, oh, it's chance why this particular campaign went viral. But if you actually dig into the data a little bit, if you step back and look at whether it's thousands of New York Times articles or tens of thousands of brands or millions of purchases, and you look across the successes and the failures, you start to see some really interesting patterns that we've been able to codify and, and put into some frameworks. So have we oversold online virality in comparison to word of mouth and the importance of that? I think we have, unfortunately. So, you know, when Contagious first came out, everyone thought I was all about going viral. That was the goal, right? How can we make something viral? And actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, uh, I think that it's great to get people to share things, but only a small portion of sharing is, is actually online. Um, and viral, while it's great, is often a flash in the pan. It's much more important to do what I'll call each one reach one. 
Or how can we make sure each potential or existing customer who heard about us or knows about us tells just one other person about our product or our service or idea? It's not as sexy as a viral video, but it's equally, if, if not more important. And so the question really at, at its core is how can we turn customers into advocates? Even if we're a small business or we only have one or two customers, how can we get those people to like who like us already to tell just one or two more people about us and become a mouthpiece for our brand? People are much more likely to trust that information coming from a peer rather than us, it'd be much more targeted and overall much more impactful. I love how you approach that problem. Now, the book's been out for a few years, so I know a lot of the business leaders who listen to this podcast would love knowing what did you do early on to try to make this book even more successful? You know, there was a a fast company piece that came out right after the book was launched that basically said, here's this guy, Jonah Berger. He says he, you know, figure out what drives word of mouth, figure out why things catch on. His book doesn't make the New York Times bestseller list. He has no idea what he's talking about. And so it was very much kind of a, you know, a a get up and, and get to it right away. But really what we did is we thought a lot about the principles in the book and how to play them out in the actual marketing of the book. So uh, take social currency, for example, the idea that, um, you know, we talk about things that make us look smart and special and in the know. We did a lot of things to do that around the book. We sent out rather than just one copy to some early readers, we sent out two so that they could give one to a friend or peer making them look good along the way for giving them that free book, but also allowing us to do a little targeting, right? Rather than us having to figure out everyone who'd like that book, using their networks and them to figure out, well, who do they know who might like it? Helping us reach an additional set of early readers. Uh, we came out with a, a $100 version of the, of the book. So regular books are usually 20 or you know sometimes 15 or even 30 bucks. Um, but uh, this great hip-hop artist, Nipsey Hussle, uh, read the book early on and applied that idea of social currency, came out with a mixtape that was $100. So he said, look, rather than doing mixtapes, which are five bucks, I'm gonna come out with a $100 mixtape, it's gonna be limited edition, gonna be signed and numbered, and, and come out with a ticket to a concert. So we very much built on that idea, did the same thing with a book, came out with a, a black cover version of Contagious that was signed and limited edition, and sold out pretty much right away. So those are just a couple of examples, but for each of the principles in the book, we really tried to say, well, how can we not just talk about this idea, but live this idea? And I think that really helped it get off the ground from from the beginning. Yeah, you just mentioned the principles. You've got six of them in the book. You mentioned one already, social currency. You've also have triggers, emotion, public, practical value, and stories. Are you cool with jumping into some of these? I would love some of the examples. You brought up some great stuff in the book, and I know the listeners would really enjoy it. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to, sure. Okay, cool. So triggers, the the second principle. When you first think of this word, what's going to happen? What should the listeners be in the know about? Yeah, so so social currency is something I think we all understand, right? We all kind of get that if something is cool or high status or makes people look good, that they'll talk about it. And, and we haven't necessarily thought how to apply it, and so that's what a lot of the book talks about, but it's a principle we generally sort of recognize. Scarce and exclusive things get talked about more. Triggers is a little more under the radar. Uh, of the six in the book, it's the one that I find when I work with companies and organizations. It's one that they hear when they when they understand it, they go, oh, I I understand it and I get it, but it's not something they necessarily would have thought of uh, in advance. And so the best way to think about triggers is top of mind, tip of tongue. The more you're thinking about something, the more like you are to talk about it and, and to share it. And the key idea here is sometimes other things in the environment remind us of things that aren't, aren't already there. So if I said peanut butter and, for example, what, what word might come to mind? Jelly. Jelly. Or if, if I said rum and, you might think of the word Coke. 
Coke, right? And so what's neat about that is peanut butter is almost like a little advertisement for jelly. Even though it's not actually there, right? Jelly's not there when you say peanut butter because the connection between the two things, when you hear about one of them, you think about another. And that's really what a trigger is. A trigger is an environmental reminder to think about whether it's a product, an idea, a behavior, anything at all that's not physically there at the moment. And so the idea behind it very simply is, well, how can we get more word of mouth by linking ourselves to the right things in the environment? Let me give you a fun sort of relatively recent example. So um, some of your listeners may remember a couple years ago, the insurance company Geico uh, had this ad for hump day. You might have remembered there was this annoying camel walking through an office, going, what day is it? What day is it? Everyone ignores him. He's a very annoying camel. Uh, Finally crumbs across this poor woman. Uh, She goes, it's hump day, and the camel gets very excited, and the ad says, you know, what uh, makes the camel happier than a a, a hump day? Um, You know, and blah, 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 blah. So funny ad, uh, basically, you know, nothing makes a camel happier than than Wednesday. Um, They got a lot of attention. The second most shared ad of the year. Um, not a beer ad, not a car ad, but an insurance ad. And a mildly funny insurance ad, but not even that funny of an insurance ad. And so one question when this thing became popular is, well, why did it become popular? It's not, not a sexy product category. I think many of your listeners think, yeah, word of mouth is really easy if you're Tesla, if you're a hidden bar. But you know, uh, insurance is not a sexy product category. Uh, logistics software, you know, socks, dishwashers, is it easy to get people to talk about these less sexy categories. If you look at the data of that Geico ad, you see something really interesting. There's a spike in shares, and then it goes down, and then another spike, and then it goes down, and another spike, and then it goes down. And if you look closer, the spikes aren't random. They're actually seven days apart. And if you look even closer, they're every Wednesday, or as it's colloquially known, hump day. And so that piece of content is equally good or bad. It's funny or not funny every day of the week. But Wednesday rolls around, and because it talks about hump day, right, people think about the ad on Wednesday, they're much more likely to talk about it, and they're much more likely to share it. So this is a great example of triggers, right? Linking that ad to something in the environment so that when it comes up, people talk about it and share it. And so the same idea is true of any, of any business, whether you're large or small, right? When do you want people to think about you, and what in the environment can you use to remind them of you at the right time? I think about this often when I think about reusable grocery bags, sort of a personal example. We all often have them at home. We often forget to use them. We get to the store, we go, oh, I forgot my bags and I left them at home. Why? Because the store is the only trigger for the bags, right? There's a trigger there, but it's in the wrong place, right? It's too late. We're already at the store. We're not going to go back home to get our bags. And same thing for our businesses, right? We don't want to be left at home. We've got to make sure people think about us at the right time when they're about to make a purchase decision, when that at the right point in the customer journey. And so the question then for me is always, okay, when do you want people to think about you? When is that right time? It doesn't have to be a, a time of day or a day of week. It could be when a problem comes up, when a situation arises. But when is that time? What's in the environment around at that time? And then how can you use, whether it's marketing communications or other things, to create a link to that trigger? You're more likely to be top of mind. You're more likely to be tip of tongue. It's too funny you bring up the, the Geico ad. One of my uh, my former managers at Nike, when that ad came out, he was obsessed with it. So he got the entire team uh, custom socks with the uh, the hump day camel promoting that advertisement. So it's, it's funny a few years later, you're bringing this one up. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a great example because it's become a, touch, a cultural touchstone. It's become something that, you know, bosses get their 
their, their uh, collaborators' socks about. It's become something that people talk about and share. It's no longer an ad. It's become something broader than that. And I think that's the goal. Right? We don't have to have a huge advertising budget to, to make people think about us. We have to link ourselves to something in the environment. That's one of the six uh, ways to generate word of mouth. But it's, it's not about the size of our budget. It's about saying what drives people to talk and share. What's that underlying science? And how can we leverage that to get people to talk about us. So Geico experienced a lot of positive from this. What about when you get a negative review? Are both positive and negative reviews good? Are they bad? I know a lot of times you're here, any publicity is good publicity. I would love to hear your take on this. Yeah, so we did an interesting study to test this because I think this is a great case and this is why science exists, where there are two competing intuitions. On the one hand, people would say, any publicity is good publicity, right? As long as you spell my name right, you know, talking about me is fine. At the same time, there are lots of examples where negative publicity hurts, right? You think about movies that tank because it gets lots of negative reviews early on. You think about uh, you know, uh, books or ideas that never get off the ground because it get a lot of negative attention uh, early in the process. And so one question is, well, which of those intuitions is actually right? Is any publicity good publicity or is sometimes negative actually a, a bad thing? And so we actually looked at this. We um, went and got data from about 300 books that were reviewed in the New York Times. And we coded those reviews as whether they were positive or negative. And we also looked at how famous the author was who wrote them. So is this the author's first book, second book, and so on? Was it a well-known author or an unknown author? And we found a couple of things. First, not surprisingly, positive reviews help sales. No, no, no surprise there, right? You get a positive review in an outlet like the New York Times, and it, it increases the sales of your book from a little to even a large and significant amount. But second, and more interesting, there were effects of negative publicity, but they weren't as simple as you might expect. So in some cases, negative publicity hurt. If you were a, a well-known author, for example, like a John Grisham or a Stephen King, someone that lots of people knew already, the negative publicity hurt. It decreased sales. But if you were an unknown author, a first-time author, someone author that people didn't know much about already, their negative actually helped. It boosted sales. And if you think about why, it's very subtle, but it makes a lot of sense. If people already know you, negative can increase awareness. If they're already aware that you have a product or service out, the negative attention is going to make them more aware that your thing exists. It can only hurt their evaluation of what you're offering. But if people don't realize you exist, then even negative can be a good thing, essentially because it acts like a trigger. Right? That reminds people that you're actually out there, that your product or service exists, and it gives them an opportunity to think about you and, and purchase you in the future. And so by no means am I suggesting your listeners should go out and, and court negative uh, reviews or court negative attention, but I think negative can actually be a big opportunity. One, because it can raise awareness among a set of people who might not have known about you previously. So I would encourage everyone to write reviews about you, even if they don't necessarily like you. But two, it's a great opportunity for market research. Right? Because if a lot of people are giving you negative feedback, right, it's not a word of mouth problem. It's a product problem. A bunch of people have told you your product or service has an issue. And if you're not fixing it, you're missing an opportunity. If you're at a hotel and every day, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people can head online and say the beds are uncomfortable, you don't have a word of mouth problem. You need to go fix the beds. And a bunch of people have given you free research to be able to do that. And so to me, word of mouth, whether it's positive or negative, is a great opportunity. Negative reviews are a great opportunity to learn and fix the product, but also to make that customer whole. If you're an airline and you get negative attention, people had a bad experience, well, reach out to that customer and say, how can we make it better next time? Particularly if you're a small business and growing early on, you want to make sure each person's experience is good. And if they had a negative experience, you know about it and you fix it. 
Because if you fix that, that negative experience, even though it wasn't good to start with, that person is more likely to be a customer for life. Oh, Jonah, this is why I love your research. It's so interesting. Your work is fascinating. I'm sure the listeners are already dying to pick up the book. But you want to get them and spark them to take some action here. And that leads us to another principle, emotion. And, and I'm curious, what emotions do you find most valuable, say it, with launching a new product or, or brands coming out with something? What are we trying to get the listeners to do? You know, too often when we're launching something, we focus a lot on the functional, the functional reasons or the functional attributes, the six reasons why someone should buy this product, the, the things it does better than the competition. But we think a lot less about the emotion. Why is someone buying this product or service? We think more about features rather than benefits. But the problem is that features focus a lot on us. Features are about what the product does. The customer doesn't care about the features. The product, the customer cares about what the product does for them what benefits it provides them as a consumer or a customer. So we really need to focus on the feelings. What's the underlying reason that someone is buying a product or service? Right? They're not just buying it because they need it. They're buying it because they want to help themselves achieve something for their own business, for their own personal lives. The more we think about and understand those things, the more we understand those underlying reasons why, the more we find that emotional core that's driving behavior, the more we can really dial into those emotions and dial them up. But as you noted, not all emotions drive sharing. We did a bunch of research in this looking online content. We looked, for example, at thousands of New York Times articles, so doing textual analysis to figure out, well, which articles make the most emailed list and, and why. And we found something interesting. First, more emotion, more sharing. Right? The more emotional an article was, the more it evoked emotion in the reader, the more likely it was to make the most emailed list. Positive emotions, on average, were shared more than negative emotions, consistent with the idea that we share things to make ourselves look good, and we might want to avoid the ones that make us look bad. But what we found it was interesting is it wasn't just about positive or negative. Take three negative emotions, sadness, anger, and anxiety. All of them are negative. All of them make people feel bad, but they don't actually have the same effect on sharing. When you look at the data, you see something really interesting. Whereas sadness decreases sharing, anger or anxiety actually increase sharing. The more anger or anxious someone feels, the more anger or anxious something makes someone feel, the more likely they are to share it. Whereas the more sad something makes people feel, the less likely they are to share it. And so as we dug into the data to figure out why, we noticed something really interesting, which is that sharing is not just about positive or negative. It's about the arousal or the association that emotions have. If you think about sadness, what do you do when you're sad? You kind of want to do nothing. It's a very passive emotion. Whereas if you're angry or anxious, you want to take action. You want to yell at someone. You want to throw something. You want to do something. And so emotions that are associated with action tendencies, these high arousal emotions, whether positive or negative, drive people to share. So on the positive side, not just enough to make people feel good. You have to invoke things like surprise or inspiration. Uh, humor is also a high arousal, uh, positive emotion. And on the negative side, we tend to avoid negative. We tend to think negative is bad. But to the degree that we're solving a problem that makes someone angry or anxious, negative can actually be a good thing if it fosters action. And so if you think about it, for example, you look at uh, negative reviews online that get a lot of attention, or you look at funny YouTube videos that get shared, they both have the same underlying thing, which is there is action-associated emotion. Not just about emotion, it's about those high arousal emotions that drive people to share. Is there a particular brand that comes to mind for you, whether they instill angry emotions or positive? Let's, you mentioned Nike a couple minutes ago, and let's think about what Nike did uh, now probably about six months ago with, with Colin Kaepernick, right? They didn't just pick an emotion. 
at what he had done, anger in some cases about the fact uh, that he wasn't picked up by another team, anger in other cases on the other side of the, 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 the stage or the other side of the audience, people that thought that the NFL was giving attention to these players, but because it evoked those high arouse emotions, it didn't just go by, it got a lot of attention. It got people talking and sharing, it created controversy, which often creates more conversation. And I think if you look at what Nike's been good at over time, they got away from that more recently, but uh, what they've generally been good at over time and hopefully will come back to is really evoking emotion in, in the listener, in the, the audience member. Really think about, well, why does someone care about sport? It's not just about technical goods. It's about what sport allows us to do and allows us to achieve. And when we tap into those deeper emotions, we're not only getting people interested in what we have to offer, we're really bonding them to the brand. You bring up a very public example there. Public is another one of these principles. What, what should the listeners know about public? I feel like that's a pretty broad one. How specific can they get here? Yeah, so the quick version of public is the idea that something's easier to see, it's easier to imitate. So uh, if we think about most products or services or ideas, we often don't know the right thing to do. So we look around to others to get more information about whether something is good or not. Imagine in a foreign city, for example, and you're trying to figure out what restaurant to go to. You might use a time-tested trick, which is, well, I'll look for a place that's crowded. Why? Well, you assume it's crowded, it must be good. If lots of people are eating there, you use them as a signal of information that the restaurant must be a good place to eat. Do you know that's good? No, but you make that inference because if others are doing it, it provides a signal of information. But notice you can only use others as a signal of information if you can see what they're doing. Right? If you go by that restaurant, you can't see inside the window. There's no way to use them as a signal of information. There's no way to use them as information about what you should do because you can't see it. You can't imitate it. And so that's the idea of public. How can you make things easier to see and easier to imitate? The more visible it is, the more observable it is, the more likely others can use it as a signal of information and do the same thing themselves. And so whether you think about you know, the iPhone when it first came out, using white headphones as a way to make it more observable. Think about I voted stickers, make it more likely that other people vote. Think about Lululemon bags that are reusable that people carry around with them and provide ready, visible social currency and social proof for the brand. The question for me is always, how can you take the invisible and make it more visible? For most products and services, people have no idea what their friends and colleagues are using, but if they can't see it, they can't imitate it. So as leaders of brands, we need to make the invisible visible. We need to make things easier to see. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And I want to leave the final two principles for the listeners to pick up because I really think they should purchase this book. Anyone in the marketing realm running a business, I think the tactics, strategies, examples you implemented are tremendous. So I want to leave those two alone. I would love bringing up a few other things, though, that you've discussed across your work. And one of them is never exercising alone. Why is that? (laughs) You know, it's, it's a principle I often try to follow in my personal life as well. Um, and, you know, when we think about motivating people, particularly as leaders of organizations, we tend to default to one of two things, right? The carrot and the stick. We either say, hey, we'll pay people more. You do this, you get a bonus. We'll punish you. If you don't do this, we'll, we'll fire you. But unfortunately, neither of those often work. They're often effective in the short term, but they're very expensive, and they often don't work in the long term. And so one question is, well, what is more effective? What's a better way to motivate people to action? And so a few years ago, some researchers looked at exactly this. They did a study in Southern California where they knocked on doors and tried to get people to save more energy. And they tried different appeals. One appeal was they knocked on doors and said, hey, saving energy is good for the environment, so save energy. Another appeal talked about money and how saving energy was good for your wallet. 
Another appeal talked about how you'd be a good community member if you saved energy. All these are sort of standard approaches to motivate behavior. But when the researchers actually looked at the data, none of these worked. Whether it's talking about money or being a good citizen or helping the environment, all things we think would change behavior, none of them actually drove action. But there was a fourth appeal that was actually quite effective. And that appeal very simply was your neighbors are using less energy, so you should too. Comparing people to others around them made them much more likely to take action, and in this case, save energy. And the same thing is true in a variety of different domains. Scientists call this idea social facilitation, right? Whether we're exercising at the gym or working at the office, having other people around, particularly the right others, can motivate us to work harder. If we're swimming, for example, having someone in the lane next to us makes us swim faster. Running on a treadmill, doing it next to someone else gets us competitive juices and, and makes us go a little bit more. And so comparing ourselves to others, particularly the right others, is often a powerful motivating tool to drive action. Yeah, no, I was cracking up when I read that in the book and I was thinking about if I'm running out on the street, the second I see a car coming, I am speeding up immediately. I'm trying to run as fast as possible. So after I read Contagious, I just went out and I had to figure out everything that you'd put out there. And I picked up the next book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Force That Shaped Behavior. I don't want to dive into too many details here, but there are a few things I would love uncovering about this book. What's the big overarching idea that drives this book? Yeah, I think the big idea, similar to what we just talked about, is influence is everywhere, but it's often invisible. Right? Influence has a big social influence. The power of peers, the power of others shapes everything we do. It shapes the products we buy. It shapes the services we use. It shapes how we vote, whether we exercise or not, how much we exercise, whether we save energy. Everything we do, 99.9% .9 of all behavior is shaped by others. And yet, in most cases, that influence is invisible. In most cases, we're unaware of how others influence us, and we're unaware of how to take advantage of their power of influence to shape others' behavior. And so that's really what the book is about. How by understanding these often invisible influences, can we take control of them and use them to be more effective? Whether it's at the office as leaders and as marketers, whether it's at home motivating ourselves, uh, by understanding the power of influence, we can take advantage of it and be more influential. I mean, you've got unbelievable perspective working with so many different brands, so many different companies, your research. When a company hires you, what's the first thing you're looking at in, in terms of improving their business, tapping into their customers better? I find most businesses don't understand their customers enough. They don't really understand not just who their customers are, but why their customers are there what their customers are looking for, what that customer journey looks like, what's driving their customer's behavior. And so that's where I start almost all of my projects, not with uh, the application or the final ideas or the strategies, but understanding those customer needs, putting myself in the customer's shoes and really understanding what they need to, to change their behavior. Whether it's working with a big company like the Googles or Facebooks, or whether it's looking with a small chain of dry cleaners, starting by understanding, well, why does someone use dry cleaning? When does someone go to dry cleaners? Why do they pick one dry cleaner versus another. I've gotten a chance to learn about a lot of industries by understanding the customer behavior in those industries. And I think once you really understand your customer and your customer needs and put that customer first, the applications become easy. Once you have that customer insight, you need to understand how to change behavior. And that's where books like Contagious and Invisible Influence and many others help. But once you start with that understanding of the customer, that's really where it all begins. I would love to have the listeners really walk away with one very important thing. And I know a lot of them deal with groupthink and they're wondering how can they avoid groupthink? And I know you did some research into this. Can we dive into that for a little bit? Sure. And groupthink is, is the downside of social influence, right? Social influence can be a great thing. It often helps us make better, faster, easier decisions. 
but it can also make us worse off. They can make us lead to worse decisions. It can lead groups to make worse decisions than people would have made by themselves, which is the whole point of the group, right? The group is hopefully we get together as a group, we do better off. Sometimes groups do worse. And, and so when does group think happen? And if you think about it, it comes back to the idea we discussed earlier. We discussed that concept of public, easy to see, easy to imitate. And that's the challenge of groupthink, right? We often imitate others, but we can only imitate what we can see. And so if we're in a group setting and we want people to imitate others, then we need to make it more visible what they should be doing. And we need to make it easier for them to see what others' opinions are, because then they're going to be more likely to imitate them. If we want people to avoid the crowd, if we want people to have that independent information, then we need to make their opinions less visible. We need to have people vote before they get into the meeting, for example. We need to have people write down their opinions so they're not shaped by the group. Right? And so we need to think about well, whether we want influence or not and whether to make something public. Groupthink is a downside of social influence, but we can take advantage of its upsides if we understand how it works. Yeah, what I loved about the book is is you show how you can take advantage of the upside there. So I'm so glad you brought that to attention. The book was Invisible Influence, The Hidden Force That Shapes Behavior. I love hitting on a few quick hit questions here. One of them is, who's the most impressive person you've had the opportunity to be around? Oh, goodness. You know, I don't think, I don't think there's one person that I find most impressive. Um, I always try to notice different things about different people that I find impressive and borrow and try to emulate the best pieces. Someone once said, you know, you're the combination of your five best friends. And I, I think that's a great phrase. Understanding what makes whoever uh, you notice successful and borrowing the pieces that you like is a great place to start. Borrowing the pieces you like. I absolutely love that. What about with consuming new knowledge, whether that be books, podcasts, what specifically do you focus in on? And are there anyone you want to bring to attention? You know, I think it's really easy to get stuck in our own rut. I think it's really easy to become aware of the same sources because they're, you know, popular in the industry we use, the same outlets because our peers use them. I often find it's really interesting and enjoyable to interact with people from different disciplines or different areas. Most of my best research uh, ideas have not come from going to conferences within my discipline, but actually conferences from outside my discipline. That's why I find things like CEO summits so valuable when there are uh, CEOs or business leaders, even small business leaders from different industries who are all dealing with the same problems in some sense, but from a very different vantage point. And so I find it's often valuable to get insights from outside the area we work in uh, rather than inside. And that's one of the main reasons I launched this podcast. So I love you brought that up. What about what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you? <laughs> Um, you know, uh, I don't know what the nicest thing is, but I know a nice thing, which is anytime someone finds the research uh, that I or others I know have done valuable, I always find it really enjoyable. Academic research, uh, we do it with the idea of, of discovering knowledge, but sometimes it doesn't get used. And so when people actually find that work and find it valuable and are able to use it and makes a difference in their own business, nothing makes me happier. Oh, that's fantastic. So Jonah, you mentioned you're working on another book. Are you able to preview what that might be? Uh, I'll give you the, I'll give you a 30 second pitch. <laughs> so it's called the catalyst uh, and it's called the subtitle is how to change anyone's mind. Um, and the very simple idea is, you know, whenever we try to change someone's mind, we think it's about pushing. It's about giving more information. We think it's about pressuring harder, better sales tactics, being more persuasive, being more convincing. Um, but there's another side to influence because often pushing doesn't work. Often we push and we push and we push and there's no change. Uh, and if you actually look at an analogy to chemistry, Catalysts in chemistry are quite interesting. They don't create change by pushing harder, adding more energy. They actually create an alternate path that creates, requires less energy. Why? Because they remove the barriers to change. 
They don't push harder. They figure out what the barriers are that are preventing change and remove them. Think about a car, for example. You're on an incline on a hill. Starting your car, you press on the gas, you press on the gas. It's not going anywhere. That's often what we do. We push harder. We press on the gas. But sometimes we just need to depress the parking brake. Sometimes there's a barrier that's getting in the way of us moving that we're not aware of. And so this book is all about discovering what those barriers are and how to mitigate I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of that. Your other two books, Contagious, Why Things Catch On and Invisible Influence, The Hidden Force That Shape Behavior. Jonah Berger, this has been an absolute blast for me, a real honor. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you? Uh, you can find my books any place where books are sold. Uh, you can find a bunch of free resources on my website, which is just jonahberger.com. Uh, and you can find me at j1berger on Twitter. Jonah Berger, thank you for joining us on What Got You There? No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the northern lights. Yes, they saw the northern lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.